1: Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I love going for walks on the beach. Yes, I love the sea, but actually I'm a little bit of a nosy parker. I like to look at the houses that are right next to the sea to see how the other half live. And to ask myself the question, gee, these guys are in trouble (laughs) if sea levels rise and if we have some massive storms. And I keep thinking, gee, why haven't they sold out or moved back? Or how come they're still being insured? And how do they manage to borrow the money to buy the house? Because I do see that they sell. Apart from seeing the houses from the beach, I also like to walk along the road behind the houses to see if there are any for sale. Mainly because, let's be frank about it, I quite like to... (laughs) to live in one and be that rich. But also just to see whether these houses are selling because you'd think with all of the talk around climate change, rising sea levels and big storms that these houses wouldn't be selling and that the values would already have fallen because the market is saying this may be less affordable, more expensive to insure and the banks, of course, do not want to lend money to someone who doesn't have insurance on their house. So how come? these houses are still valuable and still selling. And should they? This week on When the Facts Change, we look at the issue of moral hazard around climate retreat. Obviously, tragically, in the last few weeks, we've had a couple of events where it's clear that warming oceans, rising sea levels, and the increasing intensity of climate events is being driven by climate change, and it seems to be happening faster in many ways, faster than we can keep up and get our little heads around it. Because it turns out, humans are not very good at assessing the risk. This week, we talked to Belinda Storey, who is a Senior Research Fellow at the New Zealand Climate Change Research Institute and a Managing Director of Climate Sigma. She thinks a lot about not just climate change, but the risks it poses for insurers and bankers and people who own land, and also how the government should respond, because there's a couple of ways this could go. A, the government could do nothing, and then at some point an insurer and a bank will finally work out this is a house right beside the sea that keeps getting flooded. They may know this, sadly, because of a claim that comes through from the events of the last couple of weeks. They plug that into their models and suddenly they work out, actually, that fancy house that's valued at $8 million, to insure for $8 million will require either a massive premium increase or we won't insure it at all. And that's an interesting moment, which will be between the owner of the house and the insurer, but not the bank. As we discover in this week's When the Facts change. the insurers aren't talking to the banks about when they roll over those contracts. And remember, the banks often lend to people for terms of up to 30 years, but they could be stranded with a big loan on a house when the insurer removes it after a year. So that's something for uh, policymakers and the Reserve Bank and insurers to bankers and th- to think about, but also those people who are thinking of buying houses, knowing effectively when you buy a house that may be at risk, it's in a floodplain or next to the sea, it is on a one-year egg timer. Anytime within a year, your insurer could decide, no, nope, we can't insure you anymore. At that moment, it's very difficult for someone to buy that house And, of course, get a loan when they can't get insurance. And this is something that I think a lot of people buying houses and real estate agents and those people who value houses haven't really thought through. They may well start thinking it through in the next few weeks as it becomes clear the damage from Cyclone Gabrielle is going to be huge, and it's going to force us to think about whether we can afford to stay in these places, whether we should stay in these places, And here's the key, who pays to move people away? And should you get paid the full value of the house? Because remember, in the last 20 or 30 years, New Zealand has become less equal, and the most obvious place where we can see we've become less equal is in the, quote, good old Kiwi batch. Back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, if you were in the middle class, you might own a family batch And it might be a one or two bedroom, quite rickety affair, and you might go there for Christmas. And it probably even had a toilet out the back. It certainly wasn't very fancy. It probably didn't have a deck. And uh, basically, it was a house with a bunch of that uh, soft springy grass that we all like to roll around on. But of course, in the last 20 or 30 years, as people have become wealthier, they've borrowed more, their own home back in the city has become worth more. A lot of people have invested a lot of money in these so-called good old Kiwi batches where once you might have had one or two bedrooms, now you've got six and you've got three garages and you've got an infinity pool and the deck that seems to go forever. And it might be worth six million, not one million. And let's say you're told that you're going to have to retreat, go somewhere else. Who should pay the six million and should the six million be paid? We talk with Belinda about how we avoid the problem of, in effect, people being rewarded for investing in places that they perhaps should have known would be dangerous. And also, it ensures that we have a social license for our response to climate change, where a whole bunch of people who may be really struggling in the suburbs of Mangere or Glen Innes or in uh, West Auckland haven't been able to insure their contents in their house, which has just been wiped out, and then they see their government using their taxes to pay someone $5 million to move to another fancy house further back up the hill. That's one of the challenges for us in this climate change response. Who's going to pay? Secondly, are we willing collectively to pay to invest in infrastructure for climate resilience. This is going to be one of the core issues in a debate that's beginning to form. So, In the last couple of days this week, after the events of Cyclone Gabriel, we've seen both main parties, National and Labor, and of course the Greens, start to talk in phrases we haven't heard for a while. Things like, bipartisan, long term about how to deal with climate resilience. To do things like, for example, ensure that the pipes are big enough, that the uh, parts of the country where you you do need to return them back to marshland or wetlands actually happens, and who pays for that, and ensuring things like roads are made less watery so that all the water doesn't rush off and into the pipes so that it soaks down through the ground. All of these things are going to cost money and have to be done over a long time, as well as, of course, paying to retreat. That will require both main parties to come together and come to an agreement about these thorny issues around moral hazard, but also the cost of infrastructure. And here's the real problem. For the last 30 years, parties from both sides, National and Labour, have run the government and focused it on keeping taxes low and keeping debt low, with the assumption that our population won't grow much and that we should stop spending so much money on infrastructure, dams and roads and those sorts of things. That seemed to work for the first 10 or 20 years until we engineered a couple of migration booms. Now it doesn't work. But also the change since then is that the climate is clearly changing faster than we expected and is landing a whole bunch of costs, and also the need to invest in infrastructure. We heard this week from Christopher Luxon and from James Shaw that there will have to be massive investment over time in climate resilience. But who's going to pay? Are we going to have to have higher taxes to pay for it? Maybe that tax should come from a land tax or a wealth tax. Should we have new fees and charges to compensate the state for taking on some of that risk in the form of insurance premium? Should we, for example, take on extra debt to invest in this infrastructure so that over the long run we don't have these big expensive events? For example, if you reconditioned your city to deal with these sorts of flooding events by investing in pipes, investing in spongy city types of Uh, equipment and techniques, who should pay for that? Should that be paid for with borrowed money and the cost is smeared and spread out over a long term? Or should it not be done at all and we just wait for the disasters to land like a hammer blow on future generations in 10 or 20 years' time when we have another one of these events? Sadly, these things are happening more often and in a bigger way than we expected. And these are the big questions now after Cyclone Gabriel. Who is going to pay? Is it going to be fair? And do we have the right fiscal setup and assumptions about how we run our economy and our government in an age of rapid climate change and enormously destructive climate events? I'm Bernard Hickey. This week on When the Facts Change, we go deep into climate change and what happens next. Well, kia ora to Belinda Story, who is a climate researcher from uh, Victoria University and a long-time studier of what climate change might mean for us in terms of our land, our finances, and thinking about the future. Belinda, thank you so much for coming on this week.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Who is going to pay, (laughs) Belinda, for potentially fixing the infrastructure after Gabriel and then paying potentially to uh, move people away from the flood zones?
0: So I think it's... um we can consider a number of different options. There's a temptation to consider that the cost should be shared. And I'm happy to talk through in a little bit of detail about why it's not going to be shared by private entities like the insurers um, and the banks. I think that this is going to be something that the central government is going to have to step up and fund. Uh, There will be some suggestions that local government should fund this but what we know is that there is a massive unfunded mandate. You've talked about this yourself. We have been asking local government to take on more and more activities and services while the uh, tax base through, through rates has remained largely static. So we've effectively introduced tax cuts by reducing services just by allocating them to an entity that can't afford to provide those services. So there's a massive um, unfunded mandate already. Local governments can't maintain their infrastructure for today, let alone tomorrow's climate. So I think that that's going to have to be something that central government steps up and provides funding to respond to this event and help make us more resilient to the next event that isn't going to be that far away. So
1: I'm just as much of a capitalist as the next guy when it comes to believing that people who take a risk and own an asset should be the ones who have to repair the asset or take the hit of a lower asset value when something happens. Why, why do you say that private companies, private individuals, private insurers, private banks aren't going to be the ones to wear the cost?
0: The very simple thing um, with insurers is the time frame that they commit to be involved in that risk. So because insurers only provide policies for 12 months at a time, when when that risk starts to escalate and starts to become expensive, they will simply stop providing cover in those locations. So it's too easy for the insurer to step out of the way. They're never going to be left holding that risk banks are a little bit more difficult because they do provide mortgages for longer. But again, banks are going to start to undertake that sort of analysis and will start restricting their availability of mortgages to locations where they're not comfortable that there's going to be insurance in the long run, or they're not sure that the individual is going to be able to cover the loss if um, insurance is lost and um, that property is used as collateral for the loan itself.
1: So isn't this just, you know, nature healing in in an economic sense that if you happen to buy a property in a flood zone and you didn't do your research and then suddenly the insurer won't insure it and therefore the bank won't lend against it, the value of your property collapses because so much of the value is that our properties are dependent on bank loans to pump up the value. And therefore, you know, because you didn't do your research properly and you didn't believe in climate change, um, surely this is some sort of uh, um, economic karma at work. Why why do you think uh, that um, this can't stand?
0: A key thing is there's two pieces. One of them is that um, people who are participating in this market, so people who are buying houses, are up against... Cognitive biases that make it really difficult for them to assess those risks. Um, so that's, that's one of the pieces of it. Um, some of those biases means that they're much less likely to be able to anticipate the size of that risk.
1: So when you say cognitive biases, what does that mean?
0: We find it really difficult to understand rare events. We're really good at underestimating how likely that event is to occur and how devastating that's going to be to us. We tend to assume it's not going to happen to us; it'll happen to somebody else. So we don't—we we tend to be optimistic and assume it's not going to happen to us. When the event occurs, we're really good at forgetting it. So what we know is that property values after a devastating event fall, but they recover as if the event hadn't occurred within three to seven years. And we know that across all hazards across the world. So people are willing to pay for a house back before the event. Seven years later, they're, they're happy to, to effectively ignore that that hazard was there in the first place. We saw that in Christchurch on liquefaction. We've seen that in Japan with earthquakes. Um, and we see that in storms in the States. So, we're really good at forgetting the event and, and assuming that it'll, it, um, it won't happen again. We're also really good at thinking, well, if everybody else is buying these properties, it must be okay. So, we, we tend to herd. Uh, so, there's a number of biases that make us really poor decision makers when it comes to disaster risk. So, that's one of the key reasons why markets don't work well when it comes to disaster risk. The other key point is that when a disaster occurs, it's something that's called charity hazard. Democratically elected governments find it almost impossible to say no. And so we are going to spend money. It's just whether we spend money wisely that permanently reduces the risk or we spend tens of millions, if not billions, suppressing the risk, spending lots of money, locking people into harm's way. We can do that by subsidising public insurance. We can do that by subsidising defences. We can do that by subsidising pe- subsidizing people to um, lift their homes, for example, or make them more waterproof. All of those measures either transfer the risk or suppress the risk. They don't reduce the risk. The only way to permanently reduce the risk is to get out of harm's way.
1: So there's a, a real dilemma here um, because... None of us like to see people benefit unfairly from public spending or um, an an increase in public debt that seems to benefit a very already wealthy person who may have a house on Mm -hmm. the edge of the cliff or by the sea. So how do you ensure that we don't have a situation where all the money is spent but it goes to the people who are the richest with the fanciest houses with the best views.
0: So a simple way is that we put a cap, um, that, yes, we provide compensation, but we put a cap, a cap that the average New Zealander is its close enough to the average value of a house that a New Zealander looks at it and goes, yeah, that seems about fair. So we don't pay for $5 million houses. The cap should be well below that. Exactly what that is, I think we need to do some analysis and have a look at how can we provide the maximum protection to the most number of people with a reasonable cap that doesn't reward people, not only people who have expensive houses now, but doesn't reward people to keep building houses and renovating houses. Um, So my family have a place at Cook's Beach and there are so many houses right along that waterfront, right behind the defences that have been knocked down. The the Kiwi batches from the 70s and the 80s have been knocked down and built six-bedroom houses and they're going to wash away. um, Those houses behind that uh, rock armory were flooded this weekend. And so we're continuing to encourage people to think that we should put more assets in those locations. So a cap, in some ways, helps balance out those equity concerns, and it also sends a signal that we're not going to continue to provide um, support for accumulating assets in these most hazardous locations.
1: So what would that cap look like in the context of the market we have at the moment and the legislation that we have? We've got a Climate Adaptation Act, which in theory we might see after the next election. We don't have the details on it yet. How would you integrate a cap like that into legislation and how would it affect our existing markets?
0: So um, I need to, to disclose something here. I'm involved in an expert working group advice, providing advice to the Minister of Climate Change on these very questions. So I'm quite limited about what I can share. Um, So anything I share today is absolutely my personal opinion, but I just want to be explicit that 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 work is undertaking. It is really complex. Um, So there's a lot of things that we need to consider about that. Um, We need to consider the need to be able to address all of the situations and also be sufficiently straightforward that it's not a system that people cannot get their head around. So, yes, setting those caps is something that that group is thinking about. Um, uh, it is an independent group. It is providing advice independently to the minister. Um, and But that is something that the group is considering.
1: So on the other side of the uh, equation, you've got someone who has renovated the good old Kiwi one-bedroom batch into the 6 bedroom mega mansion with the the deck that goes right out over the sea and has an infinity pool and and they've invested their entire life savings into this this is the the whole family's future is tied up in that infinity pool it's not fair that I'm only going to get you know 1 million when the thing's worth 6 million and the 6 million's being spent it's not fair this is my financial future and the future of my family, and I had no idea when I renovated the one-bedroom batch into the six-bedroom mega-mansion. I uh, had no idea that climate change was going to come this fast. No one told me. So why should I have to sacrifice the $5 million?
0: Um, So owning an asset is a decision to um, uh, make an assessment of risk and reward. And so people should bear some of the risk, Um, particularly if they're um, very sizable and there's been um, significant um, either rebuilding or renovations. This is one of those situations where we really get into the difficulty between complexity though and fairness. So there might be situations where the most fair outcome would be to say that if you've renovated within X period of time then you're covered and you don't. But then you start getting a system that's so complex it could take people too much time to just even understand where they sit. So um, the other one I would add is that I understand that there is some view that if you've been there a long time, you should be treated differently than if you've just bought yesterday. And I I understand that. However, if I can share a personal experience here, my um, family were dairy farmers in the Waikato, um, and my dad spent all but two years of his life on the same piece of land. His father was born on that land, and his grandfather came out from a ship and was um, settled the land. Um, that farm had we, we had um, very strong connections to that land. Not the same as as Manawhenua would, but we had really strong connections. But when Transpower wanted to put through upgrade their line we were under the implicit threat of the land being taken for public works and so even if you've had the land for a very long period of time we have a mechanism for determining what the value is and that's the market and that is the provision that is provided in the public works act for those people who say, well, you know, we've had the land for 60 years versus someone who had it last year, and I'm going to lose money if this happens, and I've been there for 60 years. Yes, but you could have sold it last year. So these properties haven't dropped yet. So I have less sympathy for individuals who, have, who argue that their length of tenure there means that they should get a different level of compensation.
1: When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024.
0: We've seen quite a correction in housing
1: across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25, 26 The housing market will be better balanced We have seen a a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market, and I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other Kiwibank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. So these are some of the issues that the, um, the Parliament, both parties, you'd hope, um, think about when they're building the Climate Adaptation Act. But more, more broadly, for insurers and bankers, um, if uh, they're going to remain in the market, they should be thinking too about these risks that maybe this land might not be worth as much. Now, we don't know what the, the cap is yet but it's, it's unlikely to be higher than what we've got at the moment. So there is a risk here for banks and insurers and an element of uh, uh, who draws and fires first in a game of um, Mexican standoff. Uh, you know, when the music stops, who's going to be caught holding the baby? How should banks and insurers be thinking about
0: this? And, and are they? So, the good news is um, the governor of the Reserve Bank has been requiring banks to think about that. So, um, uh, thinking about what are the implications on their portfolios of transition risk and physical risk, like the extreme weather that we've experienced this in the last month, is exactly the sorts of questions that the Reserve Bank have been asking of the commercial banks. And they've been doing that for a few years. Now, the governor's got some flack for that, but hopefully there'll be slightly less of that flack, given how important it is for the banks to be thinking about this. Um, The Reserve Bank has recognised that um, we need to build the capability to undertake these assessments. And so they have been effectively ratcheting up their expectations each year and requiring the banks to build that internal capability. And the good news is there's a talent war going on amongst the commercial banks. They are, they are poaching from each other and they're hiring, they're promoting people. There's a recognition that they need the internal resource to do that. So that's fantastic. So the banks really have come to the party in, in recent years. And a large part of that is because the Reserve Bank has been requiring them to undertake that scenario analysis.
1: And the insurers, because we've got an interesting mismatch here, where the insurers roll over every year, but the banks can go much longer. And in a way, they're the ones with the fastest guns; they can pull their triggers first. <laughs> How about are they the ones that that uh, essentially, when they move, we all know we're you know in trouble?
0: So they do they do move, um, and uh, they also have the best information. They've got the best internal capability. Um, when we think about those sorts of biases that the average person faces, insurers have got a bit of a secret weapon inside the organisation, which are actuaries. They think about this sort of risk all the time. They're trained to challenge those biases. Um, it might be in a slightly different area, so they may not be disaster actuaries, but in a sense of internal capability, insurers have got lots of it, and they have been the most advanced of any sector thinking about climate change. The, definitely at the reinsurance level. So these are the insurers that insure the insurers, um, and um, at the retail level, they have been building their climate expertise. Um, and at the reinsurance space, they've been building it for a decade or more. So the insurers have the capability, and they can move fast. The banks are having to build that capability, in many cases from scratch. They definitely have good credit expertise. Obviously, that's their bread and butter. But thinking about climate risk is something that they're building now. Another key challenge that banks have is the availability of data. So, an insurer can see when the hazards are happening because they're getting claims. They can look at their own historical information And while information for 50 years ago might not be terribly relevant today, they can see how the risk is changing over the last five years. So they're seeing that risk in their policy claims themselves.
1: And sadly, they're about to get the most enormous data dump.
0: Yes. Banks, on the other hand, don't have that data directly. They're reliant on someone getting insurance. But my understanding is that even today, banks still don't know if you're insured the year after you get your mortgage. There's no requirement for the insurer to share that information with the banks. The banks have kind of been asking for it for a while, but actually, they haven't. They didn't have quite the motivation to ask for it previously. And the insurer. So there's been lots of discussions about whether that would be available. Um, and then the other one is so the ins, private insurers have that information but the public doesn't. The Reserve Bank doesn't have that information. So the Reserve Bank does not know which houses in New Zealand no longer have insurance. So even our regulator doesn't have the information that in aggregate the private insurers have.
1: So why why haven't the insurers and the banks got together, knocked heads and said, we'll set up a private network and share this stuff between us so that you get an email when someone's um, insurance gets dropped? Because it seems it's just so obvious. Or will we have to have some sort of government requirement, a legislative requirement that they share the information at least with each other, if not with the Reserve Bank as well?
0: So there's no commercial incentive for the insurers to make that available. And up until now, there hasn't been a commercial incentive for the banks to demand it or be willing to pay for it. Now, even if they were willing to pay for it, up until now, I don't know that the insurers would have provided it. So this is one of those situations where I think there needs to be regulatory intervention. And there is in the States. In the States, insurers are required to tell their regulator when they withdraw insurance because of a change in a hazard. We could do that overnight in New Zealand.
1: So one intervention is to set a cap on uh, how much people are paid to um, be forced to retreat. But what else could the government do in the insurance market um, to, uh, in theory, help this situation or ensure that people feel a bit more protected?
0: So one thing I would suggest is one thing that they should definitely not do is offer to step in and provide a public subsidy. So if you provide a public subsidy when private insurers pull out, and I understand that there is and a uh, motivation by the insurance sector to suggest that maybe the government should be the insurer of, of last resort the thing that we need to bear in mind is that that is a subsidy and that that subsidy is going to have to go up really high really fast the key difference between the subsidy that we provide with eqc for earthquakes is that we're learning more about earthquakes. So we do provide a subsidy. We we provide a standard levy for earthquake risk where effectively Auckland subsidizes Wellington. Everybody pays the same levy, but effectively we pull that risk. The government goes to the international markets and says, we'll provide some insur- we'll provide some funds in New Zealand. So we'll collect that levy and hold some funds in New Zealand, but we'll also transfer some of that risk to the to the international markets. But overall, the um the taxpayer, and Auckland Wellington, Auckland, Wellington. Um, by comparison, there is a subsidy of, loca- of houses that are particularly hazardous and, and some that aren't. That's because with earthquakes, we don't ever know exactly where it's going to fall. It's much harder to say that this particular location in Wellington, this particular street, is going to be more hazardous to others. It could be the whole suburb. It's just much harder to pinpoint that. So, we do have subs- the other key difference with earthquakes is while we're learning more about them, the risk isn't changing. The probability of, of Wellington getting a big event is still the same as it was 50 years ago. We might have learned a bit more about it, but the probability isn't changing. Whereas in climate change, those probabilities are going up and up and up. So if you provide a subsidy today, it might look affordable. It might be, say, a five thousand dollar subsidy. To, to step in and provide a backstop when private insurers pull out for flood hazard. But over time, in some location, that fl- subsidy is going to have to be $50,000 or 100000 per year for that house. There are going to be locations where it's just far better for us to move people out of that location. But if you start paying that $5,000 subsidy now, it's going to be next to impossible to say to someone in ten years' time, actually, no, no, we don't, we don't want to keep doing these payouts. We'd like to take that away.
1: So, how do we um, we manage this so that it's not so ruinously expensive, but it seems fair? Is this always going to be a political decision, and hopefully one that both main parties take? Otherwise, you've got the even worse situation of a decision being taken and then being flipped at the Drop of an electoral hat?
0: So, I have developed a potential response, which is to say that these locations have a time limit on them and that we convert those properties permanently to reflect that time limit. So, we convert properties instead of offering to provide to build the stock banks higher and higher, we accept that there's going to be some locations that we simply have to move out of. And so, we might say, actually, we think this location. We could probably patch up the defenses for 30 years and you can remain in place for 30 years, but your property's going to convert from freehold to leasehold. And in 30 years' time, that property is going to need to be either moved or demolished. And so one thing you could do is you make a compensation to change that from from a freehold to leasehold, in which case you're paying a fraction of today's price The person can continue to to remain in place. If they've got a strong sense of community, they can stay there. They can buy and sell that asset. The asset will decline over time, but there will be some people who who want to live in that particular location for a period of time. And so that's one mechanism that would significantly lower the total amount of funds that would need to be allocated, but would provide certainty for these locations about how long we need to patch up those defences for how long we need to continue to provide services for those, those locations. And over, over the long run, it will permanently reduce the risk.
1: And just finally, um, for the last 30 years or so, our government, both flavours of political party, have taken a view. Their job is to continually keep cutting taxes, keep the size of government around about 30% of GDP, and to ensure that our debt, our net debt, Stays 15, 20, 30% of GDP to essentially be uh, uh, quite low compared to other countries who have the same credit risk as us because, uh, ironically, uh, they worry about the rainy day (laughs) and the need to uh, um, be ready for that. Can New Zealand afford actually to not? invest in climate resilience infrastructure and continue to have this low tax, low debt uh, um, situation when it's pretty clear that climate's changing and seems to be changing quite fast in a way that we come up with these costs every now and again, which are brutal. And secondly, it may be better in the long run to invest in various climate resilience or climate adaptation tools or techniques that lowers the cost in the long run, but which requires either higher taxes and or charges and potentially higher debt now. Essentially, does our current fiscal framework work in a world where the climate's changing this this fast?
0: No. I think if you listen to the, the positive news reports that have come out of this event, the positive messages have all been about communities coming together and helping those in, great, in the greatest need. Climate change is going to throw these disasters at us at more frequency and they're going to be bigger. We're going to have to come together and I think one unavoidable consequence of climate change, responding to climate change, is being that we're going to have to have more collective responsibility and that means we're going to have to contribute more to the central pot through taxes and we're going to have to be more thoughtful about how we allocate that so that we make long-term decisions to support reducing um, reducing our risk rather than a short-term win that might win some votes.
1: Belinda Story, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. When the Facts change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off.